Psalm 19, one of my favorites. Anyone's favorite? Good? Okay. Um, The title, The God Who Graciously Makes Himself Known. The big idea, God graciously reveals Himself so that we might know Him and praise Him. Let's, Let's read the passage together. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 19. It reads, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And for God's word, we all say, and thank you, Lord. Amen and thank you. C.S. Lewis, uh, if you've read his book on the Psalms, it's good. Uh, I like Steve Lawson's better, but uh, Lewis's is a classic. His favorite, if you had to guess, is which psalm? 19. This is what Lewis had to say of Psalm 19. I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. This is from a poem called Revelation Poem, and it says, If only he'd show himself to me, I'd believe. Have you met anyone like that? If only he'd show himself to me, I'd believe. If only he'd speak to me, I'd take hold. He responds with starry skies and autumn leaves. He speaks from his word, both the new and the old. The world is without excuse. For more proof they may wish dearly, the world is without excuse. For revealing himself, he has done so clearly. Those who see and hear respond and praise for those who do not, may the Lord correct their gaze. So we've looked at so far, as far as types of psalms, we've looked at Torah or law psalms. We've looked at lament, that was Psalm 15. We've looked at a messianic psalm, that was Psalm 2. This is a praise psalm. So let me just talk briefly about 
what are, are some of the, the distinguishing characteristics of a praise psalm? What would you say? Praising. They're praising, that's right. They're praising, right? So this type of psalm, and I'm sorry that I look like Christmas tonight. When I walked out the door, Hey was like, you look like Christmas. And I was like, yeah, I guess I do. I got green pants on and a red shirt. So a little early, but hey, that's okay. <laughs> this type of psalm expresses great affection for the Lord on the basis of His mighty works, His provision, His protection, and His loving care. And if you were going to distill it down, what we typically see in these praise psalms is they look back to God's work of creation and they look back to His work of rescue. Okay, And what the psalmist does, he realizes that God's glory is revealed through his work of creation and through his work of rescue, and that gives grounds for praise. We praise God because he's the creator. We praise God because he's the rescuer. We praise God for old creation. We praise God for new creation. Here are some praise elements, and so these elements are typically found in these psalms. This is from Steve Lawson. You'll have praise declared. You'll have praise explained, and then praise repeated. And so typically uh, these psalms are bookended. They start and end with praise. Praise declared, praise explained, meaning here's why we're praising God. Let's praise Him. Here's why. Let's praise Him again. Does that make sense? Here's the structure, and we're going to keep an eye on this, okay? So you'll have verses 1 to 6, 7 to 11, 12 to 14. One to, and these, are, these are clear divisions in this psalm. As I studied this, I, I realized this could be like 15 sermons. And so we're going to do it in one. <laughs> um, verses 1 to 6, I put this in your handout. God revealed in creation. We'll talk about what that's called. That's called general revelation. God makes himself known through what he's made. He's there because of what he's made. Verses 7 to 11, God revealed in his word. So not only does God make himself known through what he's made, he makes himself known through what he's said, through his word. That's special revelation. I'll I'll define those terms more clearly here in a moment. And then lastly, 12 to 14, so again, God reveals himself through creation. God reveals himself through his word. How does the, the psalm end? The proper response to God's revelation, which is what? It's praise. Praise. So, um, this may be helpful. You could argue that verses 1 to 6 reveal, and if you're taking notes, the reality of the Creator God. And that verses 7 to 11 reveal the will, the will of the Creator God. So, God's reality, the fact that He is, is seen in His creation, and then His will is expressed in His what? His Word. His Word. A quick word on praise. Why do we praise? Why do we praise? Why do we do it? I think this is the last time I'll quote Lewis. Um, I'll mention him one more time at the end. Just a a good practice step application. Something that he said and did really well that I think will help us. But he said, we praise what we value and enjoy. Think about that. Who or what you spend time praising reveals your heart. And who's on the throne of your heart. 
do you spend more time lifting up the Lord or lifting up yourself? Those who treasure and enjoy God praise Him. So the first section, God revealed in creation. What are we to make of the first section? Point number one, I have five. Point number one, God reveals himself to mankind through his his creation. Let's start with verse one. What are we to make of this first section? Again, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We have the phrase kavoth el, the glory of God. God's glory, this word kavoth, it refers to his power, uh, his authority, his presence, his honor. So the heavens here, this is not like the place heaven, capital H, but the sky that we perceive during the day, the, the skies that house the luminaries, which are what? The stars and the sun and the moon. What's interesting is that in the Hebrew, the particular verbal forms used express continuous or ongoing action, much like in Greek, if it's a present tense verb. So what is David saying? What are the heavens continuously doing? They don't stop doing it. This should embarrass us because creation gets this right. We don't. And we're, you know, if you, if you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that as God's image bearers, we're kind of the climax of creation, Right? And yet we have fallen. Um, but man, I mean, the stars continue to shine. The, the moon and the sun continue to do what they're called to do, right? The, the trees grow and the, the flowers look beautiful. And all God's creation is doing what it's supposed to do. But us, we're not. But again, the, the continuous verbs, so they're declaring and they're proclaiming. God's revelation of himself through his creation is ongoing. It's continuous. Now, think about that. What grace? Why why is that grace? Because God is constantly providing proof to humanity of his existence, his beauty, his power, his glory through what he's made. It says at the end of verse 1, his handiwork. That which is, that which exists, presupposes some type of creator or creative action, right? I love going to art museums. I always have. I enjoy art. When you look at art, what do you assume right away? Somebody somebody made this. They composed it. They drew it. The painting, I guess it depends on who did it, right? If you're a parent and your child paints a picture of you, you're going to adore that. I mean, all my kids' paintings end up in my office. The painting points to what? The creator and his genius, Creation is God's masterpiece. It reveals his genius. This can further be used in apologetics. This is the design argument. Uh, Maybe you've heard of this. There's six steps. Number one, the universe displays, reveals a staggering amount of intelligibility, both within the things we observe and in the way these things relate to other things outside themselves. That is to say, this is still point one, the way they exist and coexist displays an intricately beautiful order and regularity that can fill even the most casual observer with wonder. I mean, you look around, you're like, wow, 
the stars, the sun, the moon, the landscape, the trees. Number two, either this intelligible order is the product of chance, just happened, or it's the product of intelligent design. Number three, not chance, and here's why. No order cannot cause more order, right? So less order or no order cannot produce more order. Number four, therefore the universe is the product of intelligent design. Number five, design comes only from a mind, a designer. And then finally, number six, therefore the universe is the product of an intelligent designer. The Lord is to be praised first because He is the Creator. And again, much of what He's made, He made for our benefit, right? I mean, food, animals, beautiful landscapes we enjoy, but more importantly, we stand grateful for its testimony to our Lord and Maker. What we see is evidence that He is. Amen? He is. And again, what is creation doing constantly, continuously? It is revealing God. That is grace. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So again, the luminaries, the stars, the moon, the sun, visible by day and visible by night, issue forth praise to the Creator and are intended to produce knowledge about the Creator. These things exist that God made so that we might know. God created so that we might know. Why did God create? So that we might know. Know what? That he is the creator. I got to witness to a Jew um, two weeks ago. And we were talking about Genesis, and then I took him to Revelation. (laughs) Um, But we talked about Genesis 1. And I quoted it for him in Hebrew. Right? Barashit bara Elohim, eth hashemayim, eth haaretz. In the beginning, what? What is God doing in the beginning? He's not just hanging out. He's doing something specific. What's he doing? He's creating. Creating so that we might know he is the, he's the creator. And in knowing that, there's awe, there's wonder. It should lead to what? Praise. Praise. Verses 3 to 4. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. This type of speech is inaudible. It transcends human language. But all humanity is privy to the speech of God's revelation through His creation. God communicates to all mankind through His creation. We have the language in those verses through all the earth to the end of the world. So again, this particular communication is heard throughout the earth. Yahweh for the nations. All mankind at all times and in all places are privy to God's revelation through his creation. Therefore, no one has what? No one has an excuse. God has made himself known through what he's made. And again, that testimony is ongoing. It's ongoing. Verse 4b, in them he has set a tent for the sun. This is beautiful poetical language, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. 
Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Here the sun is personified. It's compared to a bridegroom clad in splendor moving toward his bride and to a powerful warrior running his course. The sun, beautiful and powerful, has been established by God. It reveals his power and his glory to all of creation. Now, where do we see this in the New Testament? If we go to Paul in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, we read, For what can be known about God is plain to them. What's he referring to here? Creation. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, we, are without what? Without excuse, Paul says. God has made himself known through his creation. His creation reveals his glory. We who behold God's glory in his creation should give him our what? Our praise. But is that all that we have? It is sufficient enough to make us responsible for rejecting him. It's true. But it's not sufficient to save us. Can we be saved by beholding a beautiful sunset? No, we got to hear what? we got to hear news. And that brings us to our second point. How else has God revealed himself to humanity? Number two, God has revealed himself to humanity through his what? Through his word. So through his creation, the creator reveals himself. That's verses one to six. Francis Schaeffer, he's there. (laughs) He's there. He's made himself known. He's there. He's God. He's there. He's powerful. He's majestic. He's glorious. I love the back of our property. We see the sunset almost every evening. I won't see it tonight, of course. Maybe I will. Yeah, what time? It'll be close, right? But we, I just I point out to my boys, look at what God has made. How, I mean, look at all the colors in the sky, what God has made. It's beautiful. It's big. It's a, I, I don't know, guys. I've lived in other parts of the world, all over the U.S. Texas skies, man. I mean, there's just nothing like it, right? It just seems bigger here. I love our sky. Everything's bigger in Texas. But, right, what, do you, what does that reveal? The colors, the bigness, the vastness. God is glorious. He's wonderful. That is what creation reveals about God. But through the Scriptures, through the Scriptures, the Creator reveals how we are to relate to Him, how we are to please Him, and how we might know Him. And that's verses 7 to 11. God revealed in his word. So again, God's revelation through his word is called special revelation. God's revelation of himself through creation is called general revelation. Which one is more important? Special. We need special revelation. We need the word of God. We need the gospel of God. We need the the good news of God. And where's that found? It's not found in a starry sky. That wows us, yes. It reveals the magnificence of God, but we need his word. We need the good news, and that's found in the scriptures. This is pretty cool. So this is seen in the two names used for God in 
Psalm 19. So in the first section, 1 to 6, God reveals himself through his creation. And David uses the title El, which means God. But it's used in Genesis to refer to the creator God. But in the second section, verses 7 to 11, we have Yahweh, which is God's covenant name that he gives to his covenant people. And it denotes God as a relational God who speaks and reveals himself and saves and provides. He's not just the creator. He's a personal God who enters into a relationship with his people. Wow. All right, this is, this is like seven to nine. This is the meat. It's all been good so far. I mean, one to six, I'm so thankful for. But man, verses seven to 11, specifically seven to nine, um, I'll explain what's happening here. But let's just read it again. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What does it do? Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, so on and so forth. We're going to take these one at a time. But in verses 7 to 9, you guys are smart. What are we seeing here? David is using synonyms, different words or phrases to describe the Scriptures, right? Followed by an adjective. And so we have a predicate adjective relationship. That's the first line. Followed by an action. What the Word does. And so here's the order. Noun, adjective, verb. Here's the Scriptures using a different word each time. Here's how he describes it, right? Here's what it does. Noun, adjective, verb. I want to focus because of time on the verbs. How do the Scriptures function? What does the Word do? First, verse 7, reviving the soul. It's the Hebrew word shuv. Like I'm going to shuv you or shove you. That wasn't very good. But reviving, reviving the soul. It's the word shuv. It means to turn back, to restore, to revive, even to rescue. We see this same verb in Proverbs. Psalm 23, verse 3, he restores my what? He restores my soul. He shuves my soul. He restores it. This verb, shuv, denotes spiritual renewal, repentance. This is what the Lord's Word does. It moves us to repentance. Creation, what God has made, moves us to a general response. How much more God's special revelation through His Word, it moves us to repentance. It restores humanity. If you wish to be restored, you must be exposed to the Word of God. Making wise the simple. So not only does it restore, not only does it shuve, but it makes wise the simple. And who are the simple? That's us, right? <laughs> the simple are those who are easily led astray. And that's all of us because of what? What do we have in common, friends? We're all sinners. This is the main theme in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 2, and 4, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. 
the Word, the Scriptures, the Bible instructs us in the ways of God. It provides us with wisdom for right living, holy living. This wisdom in turn comes to fruition when we what? When we fear God, namely when we revere Him. I want to skip down to verse 9. We'll come back. Verse 9. Verse 9 is interesting. It kind of throws you for a loop. The text reads, and again, what we've been seeing since verse 7 are different synonyms for the Bible, for the Scriptures, for the law. But verse 9 reads, the fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord. Not what you might expect as a synonym for the Bible. Who's ever referred to the Bible as the fear of the Lord? I have not. What is David doing here? He's pointing to the human response God's word seeks to elicit in his people. And what is that response? The fear. The fear of the Lord. When we read God's word, we should fear him, revere him, be in awe of him. What might this look like? This is one of my favorite quotes from John Piper. And it's really his testimony. He wrote this years ago. He said, I met Jesus in the gospel. And his self-authenticating glory has won my admiration, my allegiance, and my trust. I have met him, and I cannot turn away from Jesus. I am held by his supreme excellence and superiority over all. That's very Piper-esque, right? But so good. In the Word of God, we are confronted with God's awesome and holy character, his unparalleled grace, love, and beauty, his amazing faithfulness. And such amazing truths work to produce awe, fear, wonder. As Piper mentions, we meet Christ, the living Savior, in the pages of Scripture, and we are in awe. The verbal phrase, enduring forever. Enduring forever. Verse 9 speaks of the enduring character of God's Word. It lasts. Amen? It lasts. This could also be a promise to those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord will endure forever. Okay, so let's go back to verse 8. Rejoicing the heart. What does the Word do? It rejoices the heart. It makes us what? It makes us glad. It makes us glad. And, you know, the heart is not the, the pumping unit in your chest in Greek or Hebrew thought, it's more akin to the mind, the seat of emotions, the the inner man, if you will. That's the heart. It's your inner person. And it makes your inner person what? Glad, joyful. That is what the Word does. The Word of God brings joy because once embraced, it results in a life that is upright and pleasing to the Lord. The Word results in joy. That sounds very Bostonian. Maybe New York. But the word results in joy, lasting satisfaction. This is the last one, verse 8, enlightening the eyes. What does that mean? The word enlightens the eyes. It illuminates. It brightens. God's truth brings clarity where before there was confusion. God's truth pierces through our darkened minds that were once hell-bent on our own destruction. Aren't you thankful for the Word? And all that it does, again, as you read these descriptors of what the Word is and how it functions and what it does, it should lead to what? 
to praise. So again, what, what is the psalmist doing in these wonderful verses? He is praising God for his word in its myriad of beneficial and transformative uses. When was the last time you praised God for the gift of his word? When was the last time you thanked the Lord for his word, the Bible? All scripture that is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. I think it's a good practice. When you get up in the morning, I'm assuming, and you open up the scriptures, that you begin by thanking the Lord for this gift. Father, I praise you for your word, which, and you can just pick one of these, which rejoices the heart, which illuminates my mind, my eyes. You've pierced through my darkened heart with your illuminating word. For that, I thank you. And he continues to do it, amen? Verse 10. And I wonder if we feel this way. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. I dare say there is no one in this room that likes honey more than I do. There's a couple of families at our church that are honey farmers, bee farmers, and I've gotten, me and Haley, three large containers in the last six months, and they're all gone. So I I drink tea. Dave, you'll appreciate this. I drink tea every night, and I drink coffee all day long. So all day long I drink coffee, but then at night I drink hot tea. And I, I really, I mean, I, I, I mean, here's the honey. It's just like count to 27. Just, it's like half and half, half honey, half tea. I, I just, I really enjoy honey. I've always liked the taste. I like it on biscuits. Enough of my honey obsession. But I'm, again, this is the word, the inspired word of God. God's word is sweeter than honey. Why does he use this language? More to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey. The scriptures are to be of supreme value in the life of the believer. God's word is more valuable than gold. It's sweeter than honey. These metaphors, and and that's what they are. These are metaphors. They refer to the beneficial effects of God's word on those who observe them. Our desire to take in God's word, to read it, and digest it should surpass even the sweetest substances known to man. Honey was one of Israel's favorite treat. I mean, that was like their favorite treat. How was the promised land described? What made it so attractive? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But how much more should we desire the sweetness of God's Word? Do you treasure the Word of God? Do you long for it? Point number three supremely treasure the Word of God and enjoy its sweet benefits. And we just read those benefits in verses 7 to 9. Aren't they sweet? Who's ever had Tillamook ice cream? You have, Adam. So this is a Pacific Northwest company. I don't know if it's served anywhere here or you can buy it here. Well, it's Pacific Northwest. No, yeah, so the plants in Oregon. But listen, have you had the custard? Have you had sea salt and honeycomb toffee? Let me tell you something. This was an obsession. I was eating at least three pints a week of this stuff in one sitting. 
I'm not lying. I mean, I, you know, this was, to this day, there's nothing tastier. However, what comes to a close second is cookie two-step. I really enjoy that. But man, Tillamook, right? They know how to do it. And that frozen custard, and here was, I wrote down the flavor. It was sea salt and honeycomb toffee. Every bite was better than the previous bite. And that's why I couldn't stop. And Haley just be like, what are you doing? Are you going to eat that in one sitting? Of course I am. And then we're going to go and to Fred Meyer, which is like their Walmart, and I'm going to go buy some more tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. How, and again, that's silly. Yeah. I mean, it was probably gross. You're probably grossed out by that. It's literally three pints a week for a season, maybe a year and a half. How much more the Word of God? Again, the psalmist compares God's Word to honey because it's so sweet. It's so sweet we must take it in. Do you desire it like that? I mean, I mean, think of the greatest meal you've ever had. I love what Piper would say. He said, man, before I have my, uh, my physical food in the morning, I'm going to have my spiritual food. That's a good practice. I mean, before you eat breakfast, I'm a big breakfast guy. I always have been. If I don't have breakfast, it's just going to be a rough day. But for those of you who are like, man, I, I got to get in the Word. Um, I don't have time. Do you have time for breakfast? Okay. Well, how about you <laughs> make sure you spend time in the Word Feed yourself spiritually before you feed yourself physically. Verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And I highlighted this. In keeping them, there is great reward. Here we see the overarching function of the Scriptures. Here we see the reason for their supreme value. Verse 11 grounds verse 10. Why are they so sweet? Why is God's Word so valuable? Because they warn and reward. They warn and and reward. What grace God warns us through His Word. I remember what Tom Schreiner said walking through Hebrews, praise God for the warnings of Scripture, right? He warns us in His Word. He guides us toward the right path through His Word. He promises reward for those who respond appropriately. By them is your servant warned. What's a servant? Here in the Hebrew, it denotes an ardent follower, a serious follower, a committed follower of the Lord. Warned, Zahar. I, don't, I can't think of any helpful, I mean, maybe you don't care, but Zahar is the Hebrew here for warned. It means to warn against trouble. The Word of God points out the pitfalls of disobedience, of dishonor, of disregard for the ways of the Lord. To tread upon any other path will result in ruin. Keeping them. What does it mean to keep something? It means to not only observe, but to obey. And what does that result in? Great reward, blessings. The Word of God points us to life. The Scriptures point us to Christ in the Gospel. And by responding appropriately to Christ in the Gospel, we have the promise of what? Life. We have great reward. Who is revealed in the Scriptures? Jesus. What's the takeaway here? Point number four, the Word of God is a guide to the godly and a means to eternal blessing. Now, what of the final section? This is verses 12 to 14, the proper response to God's revelation. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? 
the prayer, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me. That was one of the first prayers I learned to pray as a new believer. It was the NIV then. This is the ESV. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Verse 14, I pray every day. What is verse 14? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What do we see in these verses? Verses 12 to 14. Again, this is the proper response to God's revelation. How does God reveal himself, friends? Through his creation and his, the word, right, the word. What do we see in these verses 12 to 14? The word of God reveals the ugly reality of sin and its consequences. It reveals to us our need for help, for godly living, and more specifically, for a new heart and God's forgiveness. The word moves us to confess sin and ask for forgiveness. God, by His Spirit, works through His Word. Again, this is the proper response to God's Word, repentance and praise. As the words of creation, and they're inaudible, right? But they're there, and they're ongoing. As the words of creation bring praise to the Creator, so too the psalmist prays that his own words would be pleasing and honoring to the Lord. That's verse 14. Acceptable. Ratzon. Ratzon. This verb is found in the context of the sacrificial system. It's worship language. He's praying, may my words, may our words be acceptable to you, Lord. May they praise you. May they worship you. May our words be like the words of creation. Creation does what? It sings God's praises. And David says, may my words function in the same way. Again, creation gets this right. (laughs) It does. This should be our prayerful response to God's revelation. Again, this is the chief end of man, namely to worship God. This is what God's revelation through his creation in word is meant to result in a life of what? Life of praise. I love verse 14. O Lord, my rock and my what? Our Redeemer. The Word reveals God as the one who provides refuge and rescue. And furthermore, it moves us to praise Him, to exalt Him. So again, I told you guys, if you look at these praise psalms, typically they're highlighting God, His activity of creation and rescue. Because as God creates and as God rescues, He showcases His glory, which in turn moves us to do what? To praise Him. To praise Him. Take verse 14 with verse 13. In verse 13, the psalmist describes himself as the Lord's servant. His servant. What humility. The Word humbles us. It humbles us. It moves us to say, Lord, you are my Lord. I take refuge in you from sin and the lying words of the evil one. I run to you for rescue. I am your servant and you are my king. That's what the word does. 
That is the proper response to God's special revelation. And number five, the fifth and final point, pray like the psalmist that your words, thoughts, and actions would be instruments of praise to the Lord. I mean, should we pray that way? We should pray that our words, our thoughts, and our actions would be instruments of praise to the Lord. Let's conclude by pondering, thinking hard about why we praise the Lord and how we're praising. Man, I'm, I'm excited about Sunday because Sunday, I don't want to give too much away. Um, well, we're going to talk about, again, I, I see uh, Exodus 20, really 1 to 21 is a call to worship, right? The Ten Commandments, as we saw last week, how is going to be this next Sunday. Really how and why. Um, but I want to conclude with some practice steps. I didn't have room in your notes for this, so four things here. Number one, we praise the Lord for revealing himself through creation. And, and I told you I was going to come back to Lewis, okay? If you're taking notes, I would write down, just take time to observe. I, I think all of us take for granted God's glorious beauty through his creation. I'm kind of a weirdo. I will walk in my yard by myself and just look up at the trees. And I look at all the detail. And especially when the sun is shining down through the leaves. And they're almost like transparent sometimes. And you just see the sunlight spilling through. I'm like, wow, God, you made this. And that was something that Lewis did really well. He was an astute observer of nature. He watched God's handiwork and it led to what? To praise to awe, to wonder. So here's the point. Take time to be in awe of what God has made. How dare we take for granted God's masterpiece, what he's made? And he made it. Why? The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. God's glory revealed through his handiwork is meant to lead to praise. Are you praising him for what he's made? Are you enjoying what he's made? Are you in awe of what he's made? I'll be honest. So I walk during the day if I'm home, and at night I do the same thing. Yes, I might be looking for a coyote with my spotlight, but I also just love looking at the stars and being in awe of God's wonder. That's number one. Number two, we praise the Lord for his greater revelation through his, his word. And number three, we praise the Lord by living in accordance to his word. We praise the Lord by living in accordance to his word. And number four, we pray that our actions, our words, and our thoughts will be instruments of praise to the Lord. Two questions remain, and then we'll pray. First, how does Psalm, and I didn't put this in your notes either because of space. I didn't want to give you two pages stapled, sorry. So if you want to write this down, you can. I have three points here. How does Psalm 19, because I told you every week, because Jesus himself twice in Luke 24 says, all scripture points to me. It bears witness to me. It testifies to me. He includes the Psalms in the second reference in Luke 24. So the Psalms point to who? The Psalms reveal who? Christ. So the question is, how does Psalm 19 point to Jesus in the gospel? This psalm is all about divine revelation. God reveals himself through his what? His creation, and secondly, through his, his word. But who is the ultimate revelation of God? Who is the word made flesh? John 1.14. 
who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint. Jesus. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. So point number one, if you want to write this down, in Christ, the Creator has come down. The one who spoke existence into being has been, as John tells us in 1 John 1, 1, 2, and 3, the one who spoke existence into being has been seen, heard, and touched. Wow! (laughs) Number two, in Christ, the Word has been made flesh. Jesus is the visible embodiment of the glory of God. Again, John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word, the creative Word at creation, and the fulfillment and embodiment of the Word of God has come to us to bring us into right relationship with God so that we might do what? What were we made to do? Praise Him. And who or what enables us to praise the Lord as He deserves to be praised? The last point here, Christ is the key to praising God. Jesus, and only Jesus, can bring us sinners into a right relationship with a holy and just God. And it comes by trusting in Him. It's not trusting in Jesus plus, it's trusting in Jesus that he lived, died, and rose again to save sinners and to bring us back into fellowship with God. Christ is the key to praising God. Who wants to praise God? Who's the key? Christ. John 4, 23. Love John 4. Love John. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him But in order to worship the Father that way, we must know the the Son, Jesus. True worship of God begins with Jesus Christ. Through trusting in Jesus, we are reconciled to God, forgiven and given new hearts so that we can obey God and live for Him and with our lives, praise Him. Amen? All right, how can we pray this? Let's pray it together. I put it in your notes. I tried to divide it up. The natural divisions, verses 1 to 6, 7 to 11, 12 to 14. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the beauty of your creation. Your beauty, power, and glory is constantly on display before us through what you've made. May your creation cause us to be in awe of you, O Lord, our Maker. Verses 7 to 11, Father, we praise you for your word. Not only have you revealed your glory through what your hands have made, but through your word, you warn us against rejecting you. You provide us with your saving promises. You reveal to us your awesome character, and you guide us toward the way that is pleasing to you. We meet you in your word. In your word, we are graciously confronted with our sin and the saving solution, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to treasure your word. May we find great pleasure in reading, studying, and memorizing your word. And then verses 12 to 14, from the text, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May our spoken and unspoken words, the meditation of our heart, praise you 
Amen. Isn't that cool how he says, may the words of our mouth, those are the spoken words, and then the unspoken words are the words of our heart. He's covering everything. May everything we say and think praise you, O Lord, our rock, our refuge, and our Redeemer, our Savior. That is a great prayer. I would encourage you to pray that daily.